right, well, hey guys, welcome to uh, this Wednesday night class, CMI School of Christ. Appreciate you tuning in tonight, or whenever you tune in. Let me just again um, reiterate, as I do each time in the last several classes, um, and remind you of our conference coming up in June. The dates of the June uh, June Bible Conference, let me pull it up over here, uh, last full week of June, that is the 20, uh, 21st through the 25th, here in Leslie, or there in Leslie, I'm in Marshall, uh, but Leslie at the uh, Bible Research Center there on top of the mountain. We'll be having that the 21st through the 25th of uh, June. Again, the 21st will be Monday night, which is uh, just kind of a get together where we uh, just have a time of eating and, and chatting and everyone resting up from uh, the long drive, most, most people. And there'll be others coming in during the week, but uh, the actual sessions will begin on Tuesday morning and they'll carry on through noon on Friday. And sometimes we have one, sometimes we have two sessions on Friday. It just depends. But we want to see as many of you as can uh, to come and be a part of this uh, conference this year. Last year was um, a little different, and it was a very small gathering of some people from around, but mostly local folks and a few um others who made the made the journey but this year uh, things are getting kind of back to normal if uh, people will allow it to and some i'm sure are looking forward to uh getting out and doing some things so let this be some one of the things you do is come to the conference and be a part we're looking for you know it to be a really good time of fellowship and and in the word so again the 21st through the 25th of june are the dates and basically we'll be sending out an email um, just to make sure that you guys get it in your inbox of some uh, places that you could stay in the area uh, some are local very local and some are a little further away but um we're going to let you know all of the above options. There are a bunch of Airbnb options also around this area because of all the places that people travel around the, from the around the country to come and visit the Buffalo River and trails and hiking and canoeing and things like that. So there are places that uh, people have on Airbnb for you to rent. And some of those are pretty reasonable, especially if you have a group of people that are, are going to go together. So we'll, we'll have that information. If you want to jump start, you can go ahead and start looking at those as well. So, all right, guys, let's get right into it. We have been, um, the last few times, few sessions together, we've been basically taking kind of a detour into the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And we may, we, we may go back to that at some point. 
but today what I want to do is return to the original series that we've been doing on Romans chapter 8 or Romans 5 through 8 but we're in chapter 8 coming coming close to the end of the chapter and Romans chapter 8 verse 28 and I'm going to read verses 28 through 30 but I think today's lesson will probably not get past uh, verse 28 because Romans 28 is a verse we need to take a little time and focus and perhaps clarify some a millennial a millennial worth of uh, misunderstandings misappropriations misapplications of this verse that unfortunately is one of the most encouraging verses Paul pins however the way we have used it as an encouragement has been false and we'll address those things but let's read Romans chapter 8 verses 28 through 30. Now let's say before we read it this is still dependent and we'll talk about context upon the previously stated things these are not separate issues separate little ideas and thoughts that's scattered this is part of a letter penned by paul to the churches or to the people of the christians at rome we need if you haven't gone back in a while and listened to the previous couple of lessons leading up to this you need to do that because again it it directly correlates to those and it keeps us in the framework of the context of this chapter letting us understand that the what what paul is going to say here cannot be applicable to a multitude of things but it's applicable to the point that he is trying to make to these um uh, believers in rome to the church as a whole but specifically to those to whom he penned the letter and he is make a, a beautiful point here and he says in verse 28 we know that all things work together for good to them that love god to them who are the called according to his purpose for whom he did foreknow he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them also he called, and whom he called, them also he justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, again, when you read these verses, the very first verse we read, verse 28, there's this huge issue, we call it the 600-pound gorilla in the room that we need to address. We've all heard this verse uh, removed from its, from any semblance of its context and applied to the all things that work together for good are, is taken out of its context, wrongly applied. And we say all things that work together are 
everything from circumstances, situations, losses, tragedies, bad relationships, bad this, whatever. God is using all of these events, all of these situations uh, to work them together, like making a recipe. You got to have a little pinch of this and a little pinch of that, a little pinch of tragedy, a little pinch of loss. And he's working it all together for your good. The problem is when we do that, it's because we cannot comprehend the true definition and meaning of the word good. We don't even know what good is. Because God's view of good and our view of good are totally different. Remember, my thoughts are above and far beyond your thoughts. They're not the same. It cannot be. So when we think about good, we have a, you know, we imagine, you know, flowers and cotton candy and bubble gum and, you know, wonderful situations without stress and without, you know, all these things. God's definition of good is himself, is divine, is spirit, is his son. And God's definition of good is not the same as man's because man's definition of good will always have the convenience of man related to it. But you, if you see the, just of the verses we read here, verse 29 and 30 attached to verse 28, you see that Paul here is bringing in the entirety of God's eternal purpose and the calling of the soul of man in accordance to that purpose. So we have to understand that the all things that are working together and the good itself to which they do work, toward which they work, has to do with God's ultimate eternal plan, purpose, and will. God is not situational in his dealings with man. God is singular in his dealings with man, which should cause us to understand that God's purpose for man is singular. We'll talk about that in a moment. And the all things that work together for good have a singular goal in mind, and that is good. We'll talk about good how the scriptures talk about it. Because again, if you contextualize these words that are used by Paul, you will understand we've already read this word in Romans 7 and talked about good. Even in Romans chapter 3, there's none that doeth good it still has the connotation toward that good. Why? Because they are incapable of the good. They can't do it. Why? Because none are righteous, no, not one. Because those things are inseparable. They are tied together. So again, if you ask a, a thousand Christians about this verse, they'll say, yeah, here's the good. This is the good he's working toward. And it all has them in view uh, 99.9% .9 of the time. It'll be about a better situation, a better job, a better circumstance, you know, coming out of a loss and, and building back better. That's not it. 
Again, it is inseparable to an eternal purpose and plan and intention of God concerning the souls that he has called to himself. <clears throat> Those that Paul is encouraging in this very chapter concerning the good that they as born again believers who are partakers of the law of life, the law, the spirit's law of life that has made them free from the law of sin and death. <coughs> Excuse me. That says, that says ginger, ginger beer, not alcohol, ginger ale. <laughs> so, while this is an encouragement to the people, it's not a situational encouragement or circumstantial encouragement that says, yeah, you're, you're, these things are going to get better for you. This situation is not going to be the end of you. You're going to come back. You're going to be better. Things are going to happen for you. You know, what we hear today described as prophecy, prophetic uh, encouragements given to the body of Christ. And they'll say, it's going to get better for you. You're, you're making a comeback. Well, that's not the good. Hopefully you will. But this encouragement that Paul is giving to the church has nothing to do with bad things happening at the present and a happy ending coming because that's what God does. He brings a happy endings. The encouragement to the church here is, is to point out what they presently possess in the spirit, what he's been doing throughout this chapter, especially, if you want to isolate just the chapter, but what he's been saying throughout, what they presently possess is an encouragement toward that or in reference to that. What God eternally intended is now their possession. That's what Paul is trying to tell them. And his encouragement is to stand fast upon the certainty of the good that has come to you because He'll go on and say, in relation to this, so who then can bring a charge? Who can make an accusation against the people of God? And he's talking about a charge of unrighteousness because by faith they're receiving what the Jew and the Judaizer believe you have to receive by law observation. Who can actually bring such a slanderous charge of unrighteousness or incompleteness to the Lord's body, to those who are called, to those who are in Christ. Because it is God who has done this. It's God who's justified. It is the son who died. It is the son who was raised and who sits at the right hand of God making intercession for us, bringing everything into the singularity of Christ and his intercession as our high priest. So to bring a charge against the elect of God or the called ones of God, here's what you have to do. You have to cast doubt and shade upon the sufficiency of the finished work and the person of the finished work himself. This is the stability and certainty upon which we rest as the people of God. And this is his encouragement, that what they have is not something that is circumstantial, circumstantial uh, temporary, because it can change from day to day like situations and circumstances can, he is encouraging them upon, upon the basis of something that is absolute certain because it is eternally 
intended and eternally performed, wrought, and done. So he goes on even further than that and, and solidifies the whole thing even more, saying, can the God who did not withhold his son but gave him up for us all, not in or with you in union or with that son, as it said in the King James, freely give us all things. And by all things, he's talking about the good toward the toward which all things worked. The good he intended for the soul that he created. The scriptures plainly say there is no good thing that he would withhold from us. who he has called, who love him. Not one thing. And yet, unfortunately, a great swath of Christianity thrives upon the lie that he is still holding out like a carrot on a stick, the good stuff, the good thing, the end result, the totality of his purpose and plan, that all that's coming later. Don't miss it, and here's what you do not to miss it. That's that's the fuel, the blood, the lifeblood of, of, of religion. So with reference to this, what are the all things and what is the good? Paul is writing to, particularly in the Roman church here, Gentile believers, those who have come. Now he's writing to the whole of the church, both Jew and Gentiles who are believing. But in this context, he's writing to Gentile believers who are being, by Judaizing forces, swayed to look toward law observation for righteousness, for holiness, for relationship with God. And he's writing this to them to say, by faith, through grace, you have received the hope of an entire creation that has been subjected for ages to their own emptiness. A creation which is the Jews under the law, and Romans 3 will even make it broader than that and say all men, whether Jew or Gentile, the law condemned all men to be under sin and exposed the fact that they were under the governing power of sin, death, and corruption. And he's telling them that that creation that was under the headship of sin, but by God was subjected to an external law, to their own vanity, meaning he subjected them as a people who were empty and incapable of achieving his righteous standard to first, to simultaneously two things, to show them their inability to do it and to prophesy of a life that was coming that would do it in them and be that life to them. See, the law was used to some degree as a constraint outwardly until there could be a moment in time where the God who created all things could come and live in the soul and transform man from within and bring 
not a constrainment of the external, which is what most people still believe Christianity to be, but a true renewing of the internal, bringing a new heart, a new spirit, a new head, a new government to the soul of man, changing him from within, not constraining him with, from without. The, the law had power as long as that internal thing was still present and still governing because you could do what the law said but the internal constraints of sin and death made it impossible for the inward parts to actually participate in the righteousness the law demanded god had to do that by his spirit and that's the change that has come in new birth so he's writing to them to tell them this you're no longer under the headship of adam you're no longer dead in sin. Through the obedience of one man, we have been called righteous. As sin has governed, so now righteousness wields kingly power over us. Do not go back to the law. Here's my experience under the law. It was not happening. It could not happen. It was an impossibility because as long as I tried to do what was externally, I tried to do, here's the word, the good Evil was still there. Why? Because good is about something internal, not external. The good that I was trying to do was not in my capability to do. The good had to be brought in by the grace and mercy of God. And that has to be an internal reality, not some kind of a external deed done or circumstance enjoyed it can't that's not good that's not the good that god was always after nor was it the good that god intended for the soul of man to enjoy so in this chapter he's been stating these things throughout and encouraging them, again, encouraging them in an eternal and internal transaction where they have been brought from in the flesh to in the spirit. In the flesh being under the headship of Adam, subject and enslaved to sin and death. In the spirit being now under the headship or married to Christ and now filled with life and righteousness. Slaves of righteousness. So it seems to me in reading these things and understand the context, and that's why context is so important in these things, to take these words and impulse, impulsively apply them to trivial things. And I say trivial purposefully, or at least if trivial offends you, let's say to apply them to natural things things that have to do with circumstance, situation, our comfort or discomfort. To do that robs us of something very significant regarding what God intended for and performed in us who believe. And I hope this will become clear as we as we go on and i think it will when you see this in the light of the of the foreknowledge the predetermination the calling and the justification of these next verses 
to be conformed to the image of his son. These are things according to a foreknowledge and a predetermined purpose that he worked these things. He's not saying, oh God, he's in a bad situation. I better use that and, and, and maneuver these things to where they're going to bring him out to the conclusion I always had in mind. That's how we think. I think it would make sense that all things working for good must come to some connection to the calling and the purpose of God, eternal purpose. This is not just his, well, we'll talk about that. It's not just temporal happenings that we're dealing with. They come and go. And here's the thing, the temporal happenings, the bad situation turning around and coming and things come out better in the, in the future at the at certain point in time that happens to the just and the unjust that happens to the believer and the non-believer. How do we reconcile that? Well, the problem is, is not reconciling that the problem is understanding the true meaning of good and understanding the all things that God works toward that good. So let's look to begin this. Let's look at the word purpose and this may help us in Romans eight twenty eight, He uses the word according to his purpose, he works all things for good. Those who are loving God and those who are called according to his purpose. This is from the exegetical dictionary of the new Testament. And the definition is it refers to God's purpose and decree in the sense of a divine decision, a divine decision for salvation that transcends history. It transcends time. It transcends history. It is not something defined in time and history. Here's, here's the thing to make it a circumstance or a situational thing is to tie it to a history, my personal history, to tie it to a circumstance, to make it dependent on the circumstance and time and God's just working it together for my good. No, this purpose, according to which we were called, has to do with something that is transcendent of history, time, people, places, and things. So what are the all things that we're dealing with that work together for the good? To me, and, and we'll look at it in other places today, when he says all things, again, taking in the context everything he's been saying, the struggle of Paul in Romans 7, it's all the same because that was all toward the good. He wanted the good. He wanted to be good. He wanted to attain good, but evil was always there. So the all things that work together for good to me speaks of, and I think very much scripturally relevant to this is the testimonial elements of the law, the prophets and the testimony, or you could say the things that God used in his providence to orchestrate and create 
one singular testimony in the midst of a multitude of things that he utilized. Okay. He orchestrated it all to work together in harmony to create one tapestry of testimony speaking of one culminating object, one culminating end, one fulfilling amen, or so be it. He did that under the old covenant by types and figures and events and using people, using places, using all of the situations that he did in diverse manners, in multiple ways and in different times. He used these things to speak unto the fathers by the prophets. But now that multitudinous and varied way that he did that comes to its ultimate singular conclusion and he speaks it all, amens it in his son. So these things that he utilized as the testimony, the typifications, the rudimentary elements of the law and, 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 and that age, he used them within the scope of time and history. But he did so in order to invite the souls of men and ultimately to receive those who would believe into that reality that actually transcends time and history because it is eternal. It is spirit and truth. In Hebrews, you'll read these things. Again, we just quoted it. In various times, diverse manners, God spoken to the fathers. But now he has spoken in his son. Those multiplied manners in which he did it, he did it toward one ultimate good. One ultimate good. In Hebrews, Instead of the word good, you will read the word better. He, this is better, meaning the, the new is better than the old. The second is better than the first. Christ is better than, than Moses. There's a better covenant built on better promises, better sacrifices, better blood, a better mountain. But it's all, that term is used, but it's all talking about the same thing we're reading of here in Romans 8, 28, the good, what God worked and utilized those things to testify of was the ultimate good, because the good is not another external testimony. The good is the spiritual summarization of the testimony now given and provided and imputed to the heart of man. So that man is changed from within and brought internally to a state of liberty. The liberty of the sons of God, as Romans 8 says previous to this. A people who partake of an internal hope, not just a future hope to come, but an internal hope fulfilled. And unfortunately, many, many think that God still works in those various ways, diverse manners at multiple time frames and in events and situations. And God does not. 
He doesn't need that now to work out his will. He used those things for a temporary momentary age of time until his will was finally worked out. And his will was worked out in the one who says, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. And you'll recall that is in the Psalms, meaning it was not situational. God had intended for that will to be fulfilled in that way, in that son, before the foundation of the world. So if we still have a mindset that God utilizes situations, circumstances, and works in them all, orchestrates them all toward our good, our particular good, we can easily interpret this verse with that mindset and believe that God comes or, or that God gives one person a flat tire, puts one person on the unemployment line, gives another, you know, a, 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 an issue with their body just to teach something or to get us a step closer to fulfilling his purpose for our lives. I'm telling you, it's much more than that. It's much more than contracting coronavirus and then trying to assess, huh, wonder what good God has in store for me now. Since this has happened, there's got to be a good in, in, in view. Well, if you're born again, the good is not only in view, the good is in you. The good is an indwelling presence of the of the son. This is a much weightier issue than those natural situations. The, so, again, we have to understand the good and bad happens to everybody. You don't have to be a believer. You can be an unbeliever and have really good things happen or really bad things happen. And if we assess things to the unbeliever, like we do the, the believer, then we have to admit that we could look at the same and say, hey, that must be God. I don't say, I'm not saying God doesn't direct us and lead us in situations. I'm not saying that he doesn't help us or even divert things from us because he loves us. I'm not saying that. I'm telling you, this verse does not have anything to do with that because it has nothing to do with his internal and eternal intention for man. The encouragement that Paul is giving the church is upon the basis of an eternal, spiritual, and anchored matter not everyday happenings, situations. And as those of us who proclaim the gospel of God to people, to the church, to the body of Christ, our encouragement must surely and securely rest on that which is eternal, on that which transcends time and history, and therefore had a predetermination and a foreknowledge attached to it, not just woke up this morning, something happened. Wonder what God's going to do. Again, not saying we can't speak about things in to encourage people in situations. Not what I'm saying. I'm not saying we don't help people in situations. I'm saying the opposite. We can go and help someone in a natural situation where they are struggling and having trouble. 
and help them in that situation, encourage them to just, you know, to that in the midst of that situation, not say God's using this for something. No, in the midst of that situation, you do what you can to help them in it. Your encouragement to them has not to do with that in that situation. Your divine encouragement to them is your soul is anchored in something that transcends all this. That's greater than this. That is not in any way applicable to this. And that's an encouragement. That's good news. Because for someone's hope, in their relationship with God, someone's destiny to hinge upon situations, circumstances, and not a foreordained, preordained divine intent is dangerous. It's even more dangerous when that when we take that divine intention and futurize it off into the future, because guess what? The only thing you do have then is something situational and hope that God's using it for your good. Cause you don't realize you have a greater good in your soul. That should be the thrust of the gospel to the heart of men or to the ears of men that they hear. So when we're talking about and read about all things working together, I think, I shouldn't say I think, I know, we're speaking of the things used under the covenant in which he subjected an, an entire creation to its own vanity in hopes of the time in which those subjected would receive that which was not empty, that which was not vain. And in so doing, they would be filled with the completeness of another, of another life, of a, of, of a true righteousness, bringing to the soul what they innately lacked. This ensures us that we who are the called have received good, the good that God had always had in mind. Every feast, every ceremony, every type, every event used of God were testifying of good. And as a scriptural account, they still do presently. And we who are, who have received him have received good in its entirety what god calls good not what man calls good the good that god now here's the thing because this is so weighty not the good that god had in mind for raven that's not what raven gets that's how we dilute it and make it nothing it's not the good that he had in mind for Rabin that Rabin gets. It is the good that he had in mind for all men that I get. It's his own good. It's the good that is his good pleasure. It's the good that makes him say it is good. It is very good. Remember? 
So let's read some verses. Hebrews chapter 9. And verse 11, but Christ being come a high priest of good to come, good things, good to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. See, because the good that was to come doesn't have external similitude. It's not made with hands. It's not, it can't be touched just like the mountain, true mountain of God, can't be touched. That is to say, it's not of this building. It's not external, not of this. He's looking at the things of the law and saying, it's not about, it's not of this. It's not the temple you can touch or the sacrifice you can slit its throat. It's, it's, it's spirit. Neither by the blood of goats, calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us you see that's why he's the he's the high priest of good that was to come because he stands there as the good that has come toward which all of those things that we're talking about here the tabernacle the blood of goats and calves those things were working together in a testimonial fashion toward the good so under that age, they were the good that was to come, but now he stands there as the embodiment of those things that were to come, having now come, he stands there as the perfect redemption obtained for us, the atonement for all. The good thing has come and he is the just like the high priest, he's the one that stands there and makes it so. He makes it possible. He validates it in the sight of God. Hebrews chapter 10 goes on here, verse, uh, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, not the very image. The very image of the things is the good that was coming the things had a physical presence, but they had no spiritual substance because as he says in Hebrews 11, the spiritual substance is the more real thing that made or was the basis of the natural scene things being made because the spiritual form of them is the true intended form. That's the good that these things which were external and physical in their, in their uh, being, but they were not the very image. They were not the substantiation. The good is, that's who he is. But the law was just a shadow of that good. And because it was just a shadow and not the substance, it could never with those sacrifices, those elements, those parts and pieces that he utilized in harmony, could not year by year offered continually make the comers thereunto complete or perfect. To bring them to God's perfect conclusion, his end. And perfect is part of the good. That's why 
Paul will write, you are complete in him. That's the good that has come. That's, that's one aspect of it, but complete, that's another term that describes it. The good thing. What God intended for you, he has provided to you. Stand there in that certainty of being in the spirit and under the government of his grace, under the king's rule of grace. And in so doing, as we've been talking about in our Psalms 119 sessions, you have an answer for those who would bring a charge, those who would bring revilement and reproach to you. You have a true answer for them. That is God and not us. Deuteronomy chapter 8, we're going to read, uh, uh, let's see, I think verse 1 through 17, verse 18, 18. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall you observe to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee to know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord, doth man live. Thy raiment waxeth not old upon thee, neither did any foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Therefore, thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land. Here's the good. He brought the, he's bringing thee into a good land, the land of brooks of water, fountains and depths. Remember, notice you're going to see here's their previous state, starvation, thirst. Here's their state now, the good. Lands of brooks of water, fountains, depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. All things are there, all things supplied. When thou hast eaten and art full, then you shall bless the Lord thy God for the good land that he has given thee. Beware that you forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and the silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thou, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. 
who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents, scorpions, and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of Flint, who fled, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, prove thee to do good. Here's the thing. He did all this to do the good in the latter end. What's the latter end? Christ. The latter end is the new covenant, the end of the law for righteousness, the conclusion of the testimony. That's the latter end. That's what he had in view to do good in the latter end. Thou say in thine heart, my power had my might has gotten me this wealth. Thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth. And we're talking about spiritual wealth. This isn't about cars and houses, <clears throat> monetary treasures. As many would have us believe that God gives us the power, the ability to get that type of wealth. And most of the people who get that type of wealth are the ones that are scamming it from other people. The wealth that we're talking about is the riches of the grace of God. That's what he's given us the power. That's the wealth he's given power to receive to those who received him and gave them power to become the sons of God. The sons, being sons of God means you will receive the true inheritance and the promises fulfilled, the riches of the kingdom of God and be brought into the house where sons dwell. But what is the wealth? What is the implication of this? That he may establish his covenant. The giving of the wealth, the bringing into the good land, the doing good at that latter end has to do with the covenant of God being established, that he swore to the fathers. What covenant are we talking about? What he spoke to the fathers, he has fulfilled in his son. The covenant established is that son living in us. Isaiah very, or uh, uh, Jeremiah plainly says it. I will give thee as a covenant to the people. He's talking to his son. He will give his son as the covenant to the people. That's that son crying in the soul of man, Abba Father, brings into the soul of man a relational covenant with God in its entirety. Everything God promised to the fathers is now fulfilled in Christ who lives in us. That's why Peter can plainly say in Acts that what he promised to them, he hath now fulfilled unto us their children. In what? The raising up of Christ from the dead and the bringing into the soul by new birth, the one he, he raised. So this is all forth looking into the age of fulfillment when the covenant, all that God had promised, all that God had said, the good that the covenant involved, would be provided to all who believe and would deliver wholly all who believe from the bondage of the first condition. It's very plainly said in Daniel that Christ came to confirm the covenant to them that were to be the first heirs or first partakers of the promises of God to give them in their latter end the good that he had always intended. He came to confirm it. How did he do that? I am 
come unto me. I'll give you this if you'll come to me and receive it because I'm the covenant. I'm the one that will bring you into relationship with God as it is intended to be. It's the things that he had intended to give to these people. Remember, Romans 9 and 10 very plainly again says that to them were given the, the adoption. It was to them first, to the Jews first. The adoption, the covenants, the set, uh, service of the temple, all of those things that God did and said and promised and spoke in many different ways concerning the end of those things in spiritual fulfillment. He was going to bring them, not because of anything they had done to obtain it, but because God's grace and mercy would be extended to the souls of men. And that, knowing that that is the good that has now come to us, leaves no room for man's boasting, nor does it leave any room for man's condemnation of those who glory in the Lord and in the Lord alone, not by works, lest any man should boast. Now, stepping back for a second, we've talked about this a little. The reason we can use this verse in the way that we have used it, interpret it the way we have, to say that God uses situations, circumstances, bad, a lost job, a bad relationship, not only does he use it, sometimes he implements it so that he can work it together in different ways for our good. And the reason we can do that is because of this false, dangerous idea concerning God having individualized purposes for men. I have a purpose, you have a purpose, like Barney Fife, all God's children got a purpose. That's not it. That's not how it works. We think that the will of God for us is personalized. God is not like a computer that you can personalize. God has one singular purpose for the soul of all, and that is to be found in his son. That's part of the predetermination and foreknowledge of God. The destination that God had aforedetermined for all men was to be in his beloved. But for us, it's like, well, my purpose is to be a firefighter. My purpose is to be a preacher. So God does all of these things to me, utilizes all these situations. He may orchestrate some. He may implement some or use some that come upon me, however we interpret it. But he's working it all so that finally he can twist around that curve. You know, here's this curved road that put me on the straight narrow. But he does all that so that I can finally be the firefighter I was purposed to be. I can finally be the preacher, the wife, or the husband, or the whatever. No. No, it's not. That's not, that's not how it works. The purpose of God is Christ. Lo, I come to do thy will. There's one will for all men. And that is Christ himself, Christ in you made unto you all things. And we trivialize it because we believe it's all about the individual and God using these things to make sure me as an individual that I finally reach my 
purpose. The purpose of God reached you the moment you believed. And you have come to the perfect will and perfect intent of God in its fullness. And here we're about to read that in Ephesians chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 5. After he says he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, having predestinated us. Now, what I'm going to show you is that this is a mirror reflection of what we're reading in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and most people don't even see it. Because of our dead, hard-headed, incessant need to trivialize that verse and make it situational. No, it is predetermined. It's about a predetermination and a calling according to it, and the good that those who are called come to, that God has worked everything of his testimony toward. So that by the utilization of that testimony called the scripture, you can be drawn by the schoolmaster, drawn by the testimony, intrigued by the shadow, to finally be drawn to the body, the man who cast it. Ephesians 1, 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. That's when we become partakers of the good, the all spiritual blessing. In whom we have redemption through his blood, Here's part of the good. These are the things that we have because we are in him in whom we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. There's the wealth of the covenant wherein he hath abounded toward us in all spirit, wisdom, and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. You could say it this way, according to his good uh, purpose, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he would gather together in one all things in Christ, which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. There it is. All the stuff worked together, not his purpose. He worked it all together so that the, in the fullness of times, what is it? The times, the times that he utilized in diverse times and manners. Feasts, festivals, holy days, whatever. Those times had a had a conclusion. There was an expiration date at those of those times. It's called the time appointed of the Father. Those times came to their fullness. God sent his son so that he might gather together the all things. fulfill them all and show that they all had one thing. And that is the good in mind. They all intended their, their full intention, their ultimate aim, their reason to exist as given of God was to testify and finally come to be culminated in their proper, in their proper manner in him. In whom also we have obtained 
an inheritance, being predestinated according, listen to these words, because this is the exact same thing we're reading in Romans 8. If we would stop situationalizing Romans 8, 28, we'd realize it's just as significant as these words in Ephesians 1 that we love and that we cherish and that point us to an eternal intent that we now have as all spiritual blessings in Christ. In whom we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. In the Greek it is, according to the purpose of him who worked all things according to the purpose of his own purpose. I think he's trying to make a statement, a point. He works all things according to his purpose, the counsel of his own will. He's working all things according to that. And he's fulfilled those all things in one. Who, who works all things together for good. There's the one in whom it all sums up and is found in, in its completeness. He worked it all toward one goal, one intent, because it was a predetermined intent. It was a pre-foreknowledge, predestined thing. We should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in him. Now, Romans, I'm going to start in verse 8 of Romans 9, and not we, uh, we read Romans 9 a while ago and started in verse 11, but let's go back to verse 8 for a second. The Holy Ghost, now this is because the, the first and the second were still standing, he said, the Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure of the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices. But here's the weakness, could not make him that did that service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Remember what we said, the, the the transition from the first to the second was not to constrain actions, but to finally come and purge the conscience, change the heart, bring in a new spirit and a new heart. A cut, a good conscience, not an evil one, by the resurrection. But here's the nature of the all things that God worked together toward the good. They stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances. They were superficial at best. They pertained to the body, touch not, taste not, handle not. That's all it was. Now, it spoke of something deeper and greater and eternal, but it was not in itself deeper, greater, or eternal. It stood only. The only thing that it had was meats, drinks, washings, ordinances. That's why Hebrews 6 would say, let's not lay those foundations again. Let's not go back and say, we need meats, drinks, washings, and ordinances. No, God has brought you to perfection and he will guide you into all perfection, which is the spiritual form that those things stood in testimony of. 
the good that they worked in harmony to bring about. That's the perfection the Spirit of God will carry us into. Don't lay these things down again and say they're still valid or they're still needed or they're still necessary. But he says that these external superficial things were imposed upon them. That's the same thing as he subjected an entire creation to vanity. Those things were not helpful to the vanity of the internal nature of man, the vanity of the inward parts, the emptiness internally. Those things couldn't touch it because they were surface at best, superficial. And that was imposed upon them until the time of the Reformation. The Reformation in the Greek means the time where God would bring things into their satisfactory state, would bring, would display the true form in which he finds his satisfaction. And that's spirit. That's his son. That's Christ himself. He will put everything and display the things the way they should be, not the way they were as a testimony, but he will display them as they should be. That's the new covenant. That's what God has done. The new covenant he's made with the house of Israel, which he quotes here in, in Hebrews. That's when everything is brought, culminated in Christ, meaning they are brought to their this state in which they are in their satisfactory form. And that form is made known by God, which is spirit. What supersedes the external, what supersedes the the testimonial things the very image of the things that testified the substance and not the shadows anymore so it was all toward the moment in time where they will be brought to their set satisfactory form and that has to do with the new covenant jeremiah 32, and I will make an everlasting covenant, this is verse 40, with them. I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts and they shall not depart from me. Yea, I will rejoice over them to do them good and I will plant them in the land and surely with my whole heart, with my whole soul. Thus saith the Lord, like as I have brought this great evil, so will I bring upon them all the good that I have promised them. What's the fulfillment of this? An everlasting covenant. What is it? I will give. I will make a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, the chapter right before this. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And that is reiterated in Hebrews chapter 8. We're right before what we just read is him being the high priest of the good things because the whole thing of Hebrews is about bringing it from the testimony to the good that the testimony testified of. So it has to link to the new covenant being brought because that's when it happened. 
So you, you could read from verse one, because it's all connected to this chief priest that we have as the sum of all things who sits at the right hand of God. tabernacle that the Lord set up and not men bringing it to the spiritual and not the natural. And then he, then he brings it into this reality because finding fault with the first, because if the fault had been for uh, uh, the first had been faultless, he would not have found room for the second or sought out the second, but the second has come. He did. And he says, I will. Here's, uh, I think this is from the Young's literal translation. I love this. The days come, saith the Lord. Again, this is Hebrews 8, 8. I will complete with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, a new covenant, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day of taking them by the hand, bringing them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not remain in my covenant. I did not regard them, saith the Lord. This is the covenant. It has to do with the heart, in the heart, being written there, inside, internal. But look at the way he words this in the, in the Young's Literal. I will complete with the house of Israel. That's a beautiful term. It's actually the word soon teleo in the Greek, which means to conclude or consummate. In fact, if you go a little deeper in the word, it is two words, soon and teleo. Soon means with or in union with. Teleo means the end or the conclusion, the full extent of the matter. So how does this new covenant, how does he complete the new covenant with us? He brings us into a union with that which is the end, to the conclusion of the matter. That is when my soul becomes a partaker of, not of external things, but of the good of which they spoke, the good unto which they pointed. And my soul becomes complete because it's in union with him who is the good that God had intended from the beginning. What a beautiful thing. And then we go to Romans chapter 10, and this is what Paul calls the gospel. You could go to Luke chapter 1, verse 53, and it says that he has filled the hungry with the good things. And the rich he sent away empty. The rich speaks of those who were under the law and believed that by the law observation, they were in need of nothing. They were rich and they were full, but they were foolish because their richness was self-defined, not God-ordained. The good that he feels those who come to him, who are hungry for the good, who are hungry for that which they could not receive under the law, he filled them with good things. So Paul calls the gospel something very specific. Romans 10, 15, how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. In fact, that preach the gospel of peace is not actually there in the text. 
So it's how beautiful are the feet of them that bring glad tidings of good. That's the gospel. That's what we should be preaching. The glad tidings, the good news of good. The good that has come. Not the good that's still yet to become. Not the situation and say, hey, God's going to do something good. I don't know what it is. <laughs> we know the good that God has done. The gospel is proclaiming to the church, to the body of Christ, and to all the souls of all men, the good that he worked all things harmoniously toward and now has given and will give to all who, have, who believe. So I hope this has helped to some degree at least to clarify the misunderstandings that so many have regarding this verse and this idea of good. Salvation of my soul, of your soul, is the good that God had foreordained for all of us to have and possess and enjoy. He has not withheld anything of the good from us. So, may we set our heart to know, to see, to live in the enjoyment, cognizant enjoyment, because we already possess the good if we are born again in its entirety, but let's pray that God would open our heart's eyes that we may see him who is good and never look for good any other way. Never look for perfect any other way, any other place, but him. Let's realize that man's definition of good is fine in the context of men, natural world, earth, because we live on this earth. We can use English vocabulary and realize, okay, yeah, man, that, that's a good thing. Getting a new job, better job, better pay, good thing things happening for your betterment, great. That's a good thing. But that's a good thing in the definition of men's words and earthly words. God's good is different. Let's not conflate the two and try to make them the same. That's what we've done. God's good is spirit. God's good is perfect. God's good is his son. God is the definition of the word good. So, Let's pray that our eyes will be open to see the good that God has given into the soul that believes. And if you haven't believed, believe upon him. Set your heart to know him. Repent and receive the good that God has intended for your soul by faith. Receive the mercy of God, the grace, and in so doing, receive the riches of that grace, which is the good of God in its completeness. So, guys, I appreciate your patience and listening. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, share these videos with other people who think it would be a blessing to them. Uh, we'd love for as many people who can to hear the truth. That's what we do this for.
It's not just for our uh, benefit or our enjoyment because we like looking at cameras. It's because we want the gospel to be shared with the body of Christ. Now, there's other uh, lessons that I teach, and a lot of them are found on the Satisfied God podcast. If you have podcast apps and uh, you already listen to podcasts, probably, you can go and find that. I'd ask you to find it, uh, the Satisfied God podcast, and uh, subscribe to it. You'll get a notification every time a new podcast is put out. We also have podcasts for the for these classes. It'll be uh, CMI School of Christ would be the uh, podcast for this. We also have the CMI Sunday Services, or the not CMI Midwest Center for Truth Sunday Services as a podcast. So you can find all of those um, wherever you get your podcast from. So do that. Remember the dates of the conference. Let us know if we can help you in that as well. Amen.